welcome to an unexpected QAV event this week, uh, recording this on Tuesday, the 25th of April, 2023. I'm in Brisbane. TK's in Toronto, where I wasn't expecting to hear from him for a couple of weeks, but he surprised me with his presence like Jesus just popped in all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm here. <coughs> How are you, TK? Yeah, I'm good. No, I thought we had planned last week to do one this week at the same time. There you go. Yeah, anyway. I'm clear and free, so let's go. That's good. So uh, how's the last uh, bit of the travel been going? Yeah, good. We had uh, a couple of nights and days in New Orleans before this. Now I'm in Toronto with Jenny and Alex who've arrived, which is good. Haven't seen them for nearly a month, so that's great. And Ruddy and I had uh, time before New Orleans in a place called Amelia Island just outside of Jacksonville in Florida, which was good. Wow. Which is the Redneck Riviera. I saw your photo of the of, on the beach, Redneck Riviera. Tell me about the highlights of New Orleans. Did you do anything uh, fun there? I think it's probably better to talk about the lowlights. I mean, I, I absolutely hated the French Quarter there. It was just full of people, really touristy, hard to get around. And then you sort of went one street away and it was like boarded up places and you didn't feel safe, so... I highly recommend people don't go to New Orleans for the French Quarter, which is the tourist attraction, Bourbon Street and all that. But um, we jumped on the bus and saw the rest of New Orleans and then went to other parts outside of the French Quarter and it was a lovely town, beautiful town. Well, it's been, I think as I said last week, it's been probably 20 years since I've been in New Orleans, but I used to love the French Quarter. I mean, yeah, it's very touristy, it's true, but I love the, yeah, once you got off Bourbon Street and you went out to, you know, some of the other like blocks, we hit a few blues clubs and jazz clubs. But I do remember being there once, putting my headphones on, just sort of walking, listening to, I don't know, music or something. It was before, before the year of podcasts. And then all of a sudden, just thinking, ah, oh, I haven't been paying attention to where I was. And it was, I was the only white guy. And people were giving me this look like, I think one guy said to me, you must be lost, boy. Or something like that. I was like, yeah, I am sorry. <laughs> yeah, we didn't feel safe in some places of it, so we got out of there quick. But um, yeah, outside of the French Quarter, it was fine. It was really nice, clean, cruisy sort of place with good restaurants and bars and things. So, yeah, it was good. Did you see any blues, any jazz? No. What? No, well, there's nothing, well, literally nothing in the French Quarter. Really? Wow. There was one street that the tourist bus guide said this is where the music is, but it just looked really touristy as well. It's changed a lot. I don't know if we were there during spring break or what, but it was full of frat boys and hen's nights and thousands of people just milling about, doing nothing, getting in the way. It was just awful. Not your speed? No. No women flashing their breasts when people threw them uh, chains of beads from balconies? Oh, is that what that's about? No, well, there wasn't. There's people throwing bees from balconies, but it just seemed to be, you know, getting the young boys to fight each other to get them. No, you're supposed to flash your boobs if somebody throws you a chain of beads. Ah, okay. No, that wasn't going on. <laughs> I flashed mine a couple of times when I was there. Didn't really get the reaction that I'd hoped for. <laughs> anyway, oh, well, that's disappointing. Have you been paying attention to investing? I have today. <laughs> I've had a bit of time to go over things today. Well, I I haven't because uh, I wasn't 
planning on doing a show with you this week, so I've got really nothing to talk about. We've got a couple of questions that we'll get into. I guess I can do a portfolio update. The market was tracking along quite nicely for a few days then again last week, and then they must have worked out that you were coming back soon, and everything sort of uh, took a turn for the worst at one point there. But Is that because... Uh... Tucker Carlson left Fox News or something like that? Or <laughs> <laughs> I saw that in the New York Times this morning. Uh, I, I did have to wonder how he had any credibility left with the audience after all of the revelations came out from the Dominion case that he was secretly didn't believe anything that he said. That was a good investment for the private equity people who paid $28 million for Dominion four years ago and then made $780 million US. In four years. Well, they, yeah, they haven't sold it, but yeah, I'm not sure how, where that money goes that they got from the settlement, but I, yeah, I'm sure some of it will get back to them and maybe a special dividend or something. Wasn't it to make up for lost revenue for the business for the last few years? Oh, it's meant to be, yeah, but it's an outsized payment. And then the second one's coming, which is they're talking about not settling. So Smartmatic or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, portfolio report since inception, uh, we're up 18.61% CAGA per annum, according to Nevexa versus the STW up 7.42% per annum over that time. So that's pretty good. What are we, nearly a month into this quarter? This quarter, we're up 4.57% per annum versus the STW up 2.02%. So, uh, you know, we're having a good quarter. Vis a vis the benchmark. This financial year, we're up 15.7% per annum versus the STW up 16.81%. So we've nearly caught up to the benchmark for the financial year. We've still got a few months left to go and we're outperforming it so far this quarter, which is fascinating because. You know, going back, uh, like going back to November last year, we were at three point two percent versus the STW at thirteen point four. We were underperforming quite dramatically, and we have nearly, uh, nearly caught up. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's just swings and roundabouts, really, isn't it? In the short term, the market, I think, had one of the best Januaries ever, and now it's it's come off again since then. I mean, we're probably not going to get double market this financial year, but you know, uh, um, even if we just match the benchmark, I'll be happy because not many, not many fund managers, not many investors, investors are able to even meet the benchmark, considering our long-term performance is like three times. Well, look, just that it's been a very topsy-turvy year. So um, to get twelve percent or whatever it was you said before, we're getting is is pretty good. Fifteen point seven. 15.7, there you go. Wow. And again, as we've found the last uh, couple of years, the breakdown of that, according to Nevexa, capital gain is only 7.17%. Income return is 8.54%. So more than half of that is coming from dividends and, um, well, we don't have SK. Um, did we have SKT this year? It might have been the... Sky, no, that's in the light portfolios. It's not even, hasn't even been in the dummy. They, they'd had this massive capital return that I know spiked one of our uh, light portfolios, but that's not part of this. Let's look at 
The big ones for the dummy portfolio this financial year, LAU up 224% so far. (laughs) RSG up 35. SMR, my accidental buy, up 46. TRS up 33. Woodside up uh, 24. CLX up 36, CVL up 32, DUR up 41, IGL up 55. Yeah, so a lot of them have done well, but LAU, what a what a corker that's been. There must be some big dividend payers in there, though, to have an 8% dividend yield. Maybe the coal stocks, I would have thought. Well, Lindsay, uh, LAU, 9% income return on that. But the share price is been very good as well but yeah we've we've done quite well out of a couple of dividends from them one in october and uh one in april that were both quite good but yeah i i don't know the breakdown for the rest of it good dividends this financial year from amo asg bfg bri cvl fex big one from fex IGL, KOV, KSC, LAU, M- Maya. Maya's actually hasn't done very well for it from a capital gain perspective. It's down 12%, but um, a nice dividend sort of neutralized a lot of that. Yeah, they still haven't paid out. I think that doesn't pay out until like the 11th of May or something. The Maya dividend was crazy. Like the, the X date was in mid-March and the payment date's in May. It's one of those terrible ones, you know. <laughs> they just, like in the in my alert spreadsheet, it's just, it's technically a rule one sell except for we're holding on to it because of the, the dividend, you know. Well, classic retailer to pay the invoice on the last day. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're on 90-day terms with paying their dividends. Anyway, so that's that portfolio doing good all in all. It's been sort of a touchy year, but right now it's looking pretty strong. Yeah, good. Well, do you have anything else you want to talk about in terms of news of the investing world this week, TK, or do we just get into some questions? I guess just get into some questions. I, I don't really have any news of the investing world, all the news over here. Like I was, I happened to turn on Bloomberg this morning because the the um, I was looking through some channels and the uh, the headline was morning opening in Australia. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll turn it on. And it was Nice to see the Opera House on the Harbour Bridge in the background of the TV presenter who then talked about the US market, nothing about Australia at all. <laughs> so that was disappointing. And, of course, it's Anzac Day here today and the market's closed anyway. Right, because I did try and download the Fin Review before we kind of went on there and there was none. Well, thanks for working on the public holiday, Cam. There's <laughs> no public holidays when you uh, run your own business, as I'm sure everyone who runs their own business knows. Chrissy said to me, oh, you're not taking the day off. And I'm like, who's putting out the podcast if I take the day off? <laughs> ChatGPT's not doing it for me yet. Uh, you're, you're holding down the fort there. Alex is over here with me. So uh, you're doing something this week. So speaking of which, I had to do the buy list yesterday. And, you know, I hadn't... I hadn't done a buy list for quite a while because I you know, use Alex's uh, every week and she uses your sheet. I, if I do do one, I use the Flipman model. And so I had to grab data out of Alex's sheet 
I had to grab data out of the work that Maxi does for us. I have a, a freelancer who does some analysis work for us each weekend. She's out of New York. I have uh, Chris Stratton, who's built his automated model that also cross-references um, the manual data that he pulls out of Stock Doctor, and we cross-reference that against Alex's call on the manual data each week. So I had four data sets that, and then I did my, and then I had the Stock Doctor data set that I had to pull into the Flitman model, and I needed to pull all of that data together and cross-reference it against each other and and figure out one version of the truth for this. Normally, it would have taken me all day and broken my brain to do that. I just opened up GPT and I said, listen, I've got this problem. I need to integrate these data sets with these columns and this data. I need to compare this column to that, this column in this sheet to that column in that sheet. And if it agrees, I need this result. If it disagrees, I need that result, blah, 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 blah. I spent half an hour writing all of my problems into English language gave it to GPT and it was like, sure, here's how you do it. Boom, 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 boom. Here's a formula for this. Here's a formula for that. Here's a formula for this. I implemented it and it bloody worked. And I tell you, it was insane how many problems it solved for me. I couldn't have got through yesterday without GPT. It just, it absolutely saved my bacon yesterday without Alex. So I tell you people, if you <laughs> if you still think GPT is just a fancy chatbot, and you do anything that involves information work, you're really, you're missing out. It absolutely blew my mind again yesterday what it enabled me to do. Yeah, well, as Ruddy calls it, chat GDP. <laughs> GDP? <laughs> okay, so there you go. Uh, thank you, GPT-4, for saving my bacon yet again yesterday. All right, well, let's get into the questions. First one is from John. Hi, John. In reference to share investing versus share trading on the ATO website, for tax purposes, which one does Tony use? And then he uh, helpfully included a link to the ATO's website. And I know we've talked about this before over the years. I replied to John, look, I'm pretty sure you classify yourself as a share investor as opposed to a share trader. And we talk about CGT implications of buying and selling all the time. But do you just want to talk about that uh, a little bit for John's benefit, how you think of the difference and how the ATO thinks of the difference? Yeah, sure. And I guess the disclaimer is this is not individual tax advice for John or for anyone else listening. So look it up yourself on the ATO website, or, but more importantly, talk to your tax accountant about it. So my understanding is that um, you can you can basically nominate which one you are yourself. And as long as you've done a reasonable number of trades during the year, you can nominate yourself as a share trader or you can nominate yourself as a share investor. And the ATO pretty much, from what I've been told, accepts that nomination. The difference being if you're a share investor, you get the capital gains tax relief, which means if I hold a share for 12 months or more, then the capital gains tax is halved, which I think is fairly important. The other option is to be a share trader which just treats it uh, as normal sort of um, operating expenses and income, just like you do on your own PAYE tax form. So if you're investing in your own name and you make a, make a capital gain, you'll pay whatever your top marginal rate is of tax on that, and you'll get no CGT relief. The dividends will be taxed at your top marginal rate as well. But if you're an investor, you do get the CGT relief after 12 months. That's probably the main difference. And certainly share trading would help some people if they're on a low marginal tax rate. 
And it gets to be sort of line ball if you're in, say, if you're operating through a company where the company tax rate is at, at the most 30% and half of the top marginal rates 27.5%. So it's, you know, pretty close either way, really. So what are the advantages of being, of calling yourself a trader versus an investor then? There's not a whole a whole lot. You just treat it as an operating business. So you're conducting a business where your stock is shares and you're selling them and taking the income straight away to the P&L. Whereas as an investor, it's more like a balance sheet item, which is it's seen as an asset and therefore you get capital gains tax relief. So it just depends on what um, investment structure you're using, what the tax rate is in that structure and whether you want to get the deductions uh, available for offset maybe against other income. Well, I guess it, that's the same both ways, but I've never seen an advantage in doing in being a share trader versus being an investor because you lose that CGT relief. It sounds like you're saying that if you're a trader, you classify it as your source of income, whereas if you're an investor, it's a long-term wealth building exercise. Is that right? Yeah, so one's one's seen as being a movement of assets and one's seen as being operating income like you're operating a coffee shop. Instead of selling coffee, you're selling shares. All right, thanks for explaining that. Hope that helps, John. Uh, the only other question I have is from Daryl. Uh, he's asking for the latest view on using Renko charts. He says, in noticing the press lately about WHC returns and now their decision to go early on their mind expansion, I had a look at the charts. And looking back, in this case at least, following the Renko chart to sell would have given a much better outcome than the coal price sell. So he said Renko would have got him out at $8.50 to $9, whereas the coal price commodity sell would have kicked in around $7. Um, and I said the last I heard you were still thinking about Renko charts and testing it. Is that still where it's at? Yeah, so Ruddy did some analysis for me and Ruddy being Ruddy gave it to me the day before we left for the for the States. So I had a chance to go through it today when I saw the question. Or actually, I saw the question on Facebook a couple of days ago whenever it was, was put on there. So I had pulled out Ruddy's analysis. I think the Renko charts are useful in situations like Whitehaven Coal, where we've had a big a big increase in the share price and it's a long way away from its sell price. We've talked about this before. When do you sort of sell out? Do you wait till the sell price and give all your capital gains back or do you sell out earlier? And Renko had you selling out earlier. And as, as Brett says, it's kind of like a moving stop loss. There's a mathematical formula behind it, which we could actually calculate and put into an alert, but it's probably just easier to look up the chart and work out when to sell. Um, so Ruddy's analysis actually showed that rent, using Renko charts gave about a 10% better return than not using them. Now, that, that's the first sort of a piece of analysis that you know, he's done and I've looked at, and it was done way back. It was using the first time I did a transaction dump from the dummy portfolio, which I think was about a year or a year and a half in. So there's about a year and a half's worth of data in it. So we know what the results are from not using Renko charts. And then Mark went back and did two things. He he didn't buy a share that the dummy portfolio did if the Renko chart was red, so it was a sell. And he sold a share when the Renko chart went from green to red, which we may not have done in the dummy portfolio, certainly probably wouldn't have done at the same time as the Renko chart turned to a sell. We used the three-point trend lines. 
And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but overall it was a 10% better off result from using the Renko charts. So I think it's worth pursuing. My next plan would be to for myself to set up a dummy portfolio and trade it using Renko charts as well as all the other things we use. We don't change any of those and give it maybe six months at least to see whether it turns out in real life to, to be better off than um, just the paper analysis we've done. And I think if we have two ticks for that, then I think we can implement it into the into the process. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think the main thing it certainly will help in cases like uh, the the WHC case where something's gone up a lot and we it's a long way above its sell line. But it seemed to me just from what I saw today that it was also helping in not buying something that was still red on the Renko chart, even though it may have been passing all our other tests. It, you know, in a lot of cases, they were still falling knives. So you're going to implement that um, sort of Renko dummy portfolio and you'll report back to us in six months. Yeah, I'll just I'll just pick the next you know top ten stocks in the buy list and put them into a dummy portfolio and trade them for a, six months or so and see how they go. Oh, fascinating! Good timing of that question, Daryl, and thanks to you and Ruddy for doing that analysis for us. That's interesting. Yeah, and, I, and the other piece of analysis I also had time to go through today was uh, Ryan's work on buying from the top of the buy list versus buying from the bottom of the buy list, and similar sort of results. So he he did it differently. He uh, went back through the history of all the buy lists that we've produced, and at least in their current form, that's about two and a half years worth of buy lists. And uh, we could, like picked, um, I think it was about 10 or 12 at random, and then used the top 10 stocks on the buy list at that time and traded them forward. And it was a bit of work because he had to check the commodity charts and check for three-point sales for those stocks. And then if they were a sell, to, to buy another one from a buy list at that sell time. So he's done a fair bit of manual work on it. But again, his results um, are interesting. They're showing that buying from the top of the buy list is better than buying from the bottom. And there was some, there was, I think, about two cases where it wasn't. And that was, they were pretty recent ones. But in the main, it was buying from the top was better from buying than buying from the bottom. So Dylan had done some work before, Ryan, to suggest that the QAV cutoff should be 0.2 rather than 0.1. And I think from what I've seen in Ryan's early results, that's probably going to be the case. So again, I'll set up a dummy portfolio for that and and run it forward for six months and just see um, the difference in buying from the top versus buying from the bottom and uh, validate that going forward. And then if that's that works, then uh, put that into practice as well. And that that will come with limitations because we may not be able to find 15 to 20 stocks with a QAV score above 0.2. So that's why I want to test it on paper first and get the the kinks out from doing it live or doing it on live on a desktop anyway going forward. Did that factor in ADT cutoffs? Uh, he did do a bit of analysis for me with um, he did buying the top ten stocks on the buy list, buying the bottom ten stocks on the buy list, and we chose ten because when he bought twenty there was a big overlap because there wasn't enough stocks to to separate them, so we did ten. And uh, then he also did the top 10 with an ADT above, I think it was a hundred thousand, either 100,000 or 500,000. Um, so larger ADT stocks from the top and they also perform better as well. That's interesting. So higher, higher ADT stocks perform better than lower ADT stocks. Well, I think it was just because they were coming from the top of the buy list was the more important thing. 
Oh, good stuff. That's that's uh, interesting. I love it when there's um, new ideas. Speaking of new ideas, somebody asked me again yesterday when they can get their hands on the latest version of the Bredelator that we've been testing for quite a while now, the one with the uh, second byline built into it. I know that the last email conversation we had about this was, uh, I think, before you went away. You said you were still testing it. That's still the status on that? Oh, no, it's fine to go out. It's it's okay. Cool. Yeah, it looks good to me. Well, that's exciting. I will um, I'll work with Brett. Um, I'll shoot him an email after this and we'll get a public version of that ready. So cool. Thanks for that. And thank you to Brett Fisher for his uh, constant work on the Bredelator. One other thing I forgot to mention at the upside, uh, at the beginning of the show was one of the things I decided doing the buy list yesterday is that steel was a sell. Have you looked at the steel chart? I haven't, no. I haven't looked at the charts for a while. Steel sort of plummeted this month and I decided it was a sell which had a material impact because we owned a lot of blue scope in the dummy portfolio and the light portfolio and in my super. So I had to sell a ton of blue scope yesterday and sold it all at a profit too, which was nice. But again, it was one of those indicators where I didn't look at the Renko though, but it was one of these indicators where the commodity sell got us out while the share price still looked, you know, relatively healthy. It hasn't started to turn down, I don't think, dramatically. I haven't looked today. Well, I didn't look at what happened to it yesterday after I dumped it, but yeah, it came actually. It, it fell a lot yesterday. Yeah, I think a lot of people decided it was a sell. <laughs> it, it opened at twenty one thirty nine and hit a low of twenty fifty three yesterday. Stabilized around twenty dollars seventy, but if it's been going up for the last uh, six months, year to date, it's up. Go back a year ago, it was trading at sixteen dollars seventy six. Now trading about $20.64. Apart from a bit of a fall yesterday, uh, it had a bit of a drop. What was that? On the 20th of April, it started coming back. It has come back a little bit, I guess, in the last uh, week. But yeah, anyway, our commodity sell got us out of blue scope. So we'll see how that how that uh, works for us. But just an FYI for people, if they didn't notice that in the buy list yesterday, I think steel is a sell. Check it for yourself, obviously. See what you think. but. Looked like uh, a sell to me. Well, that's it. I've run out of things to talk about. Oh, look, I got a pulled pork ready. Oh, I forgot. You got a pulled pork. Nice. We should have done that before the Q&A. What are you doing for the pulled pork this week, Tony? Oh, National Australia Bank. I think someone asked for one last week on the highest ADT stock that was new to the buy list from memory. Great. So, I mean, I would think all the listeners would know National Australia Bank. It's one of the big four banks in Australia. The big four banks in Australia tend to have strengths and weaknesses in different areas, and NAB's strength is in business banking. So less so in mortgages, um, a little bit in credit cards. They have a bank in New Zealand, but it's, it's your vanilla sort of mortgage lender. And in NAB's case, business lender as well, that's its, its strength. Uh, and also wealth. So they um, bought uh, one of the old stockbrokers in Melbourne, JB Weir, a little while ago. And so that's um, enabled them to have links into high net worth individuals and um, home offices and things like that. So they're their NAB strengths. But otherwise, it's uh, it's much like the other big four banks. 
It's run by a guy called Ross McEwen, who's very well regarded. I tend to think probably one of the best CEOs in the banking space. And also the chairman is um, an experienced banker by the name of Phil Kronikin, who's also highly regarded. So I think the the bank's um, well managed at the moment. It does come with a risk in that uh, there have has been a bit of talk around town that Ross McEwen may decide to uh, resign or retire. He, and the reason for that is that when he took the job, he came across from the UK. He is an Australian, but he'd been over in the UK fixing up banks after the GFC and came back to run NAB, but said he'd do it for five years. And that, that time, I think, is in its last year now. And so there's speculation about who will take over and um, what it might mean for NAB. So that, that is a risk. Um, CEO changeovers, even when they're well-managed, and I think with someone like Phil Kronikin in, in the chair, whatever happens will be well-managed. And, of course, Ross McEwen may decide to extend. He won't be tied to his initial forecast of a five-year term if it suits him. So I think it's a risk. There's always a risk if when a new CEO comes in that they might clear the deck, so to speak, and write things down, which depresses the share price. And that's usually for two reasons. One, to reset the floor for all their options going forward off a low base. And secondly, it's probably their only time to do it during their tenure as CEO, because uh, if you don't clear the decks when you start and take down all the provisions you need to, then it's pretty hard to do later on because it will affect the share price. So there is a risk that that may happen, but um, it's it's we don't know. It's only a risk, I guess. And uh, I'm kind of leaning towards the side with Kronikin as chairman that it will be well managed, whatever happens. Anyway, that's the first risk. I guess the the other thing to talk about with the big bank, big four banks in particular is is interest rates. So interest rates are going up, as we all know. And the banks in these kind of high interest rates or rising interest rates times make more money than when interest rates are lower out of mortgages anyway, because they raise the rates quickly and they don't raise the rates on deposits equally as quickly or to the same extent. So their margins improve when interest rates are rising. But I guess the risks at the moment are that if interest rates rise too much and tip the company, the country into recession, then the banks are going to face more mortgage defaults, which is also a bad thing for banks. Uh, and one of the biggest indicators of how well the banking sector is how much is is how much they are providing on their balance sheets for bad and doubtful debts. And uh, they're not providing as much as they have been in the past at the moment. But if we do look like going into recession, they'll start putting away money to cover their losses for people who uh, default on their mortgages, and that will be a material impact on their profits. So. That's potentially a risk as well. And then the other risk is that we may be at peak interest rates for this cycle. If we're not there, we're we're close to it. The RBA didn't put interest rates up this month. Um, They're calling it a pause, but there are signs inflation may be nearing its peak and might even be coming down. So if interest rates start to go down again, then that kind of margin increase for the banks is over and they'll start to reduce their margins. And I guess if it gets... If interest rates get very low again, then they're going to have to do what they did in the past and look for other ways to to grow their their bottom lines. And and they've just all now exited out of insurance and wealth, I guess, with the two main adjunct businesses they got into when interest rates were low. And they may start looking at things like that again, um, which comes with risk. And they may also start looking overseas, which has never been a a profitable hunting ground for Australian banks for whatever, for a whole variety of reasons. 
least of which is that, you know, particularly in the US, mortgages don't work the same, retail mortgages don't work the same way. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Just sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite, That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you but uh, you know while he's not <laughs> we can do this so check that out qavpodcast.com.au slash light l-i-g-h-t that's it if you don't want to sign up to any of those just keep listening to the free episodes and if you have any questions uh, shoot me an email you find that on our website too all right have a great week and good luck with your investing the qav podcast is a production of space Craft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.